subject of uh, the concentration of media ownership came up, uh, and I do want to get to that, but I want to ask each of you just a kind of a quick question here. A uh, headline in the report on business in the Globe today has uh, the head of the CIBC, uh, Al Flood, uh, and the headline says, CBC boss warns Ottawa no onerous conditions on merger. In other words, they're sending the word to Paul Martin to mind your P's and Q's and don't get in our way. Um, Jeffrey, let me ask you, is, there, is this a reasonable position for a, a re federally regulated uh, uh, organization to take? Does he have any right to say that sort of thing to, to Ottawa? Well, certainly not in the sense that it's, it, these guys have a lot of, um, I don't know if monopolistic is, is not the right word, oligarchical interest in the sense that, that you've, you know, we've got the major banks who effectively have a lock on the Canadian market and in exchange for that uh, the deal has always been that they're supposed to be particularly uh, kind to Canada if you like I guess mm -hmm. and not consider profit as their only goal so to me they're dancing as sort of a fine dance there and have to be careful about uh, about offending Martin too much because the, the threat has always been and continues to be well we'll just throw the market open and you can compete with Citibank in Toronto if you want mm -hmm. and see how you like it then Robert do you any concern on your part for the a major bank saying uh, butt out well Jeff's, Jeff's last point there is exactly what should happen Citibank should be in the country competing um, you know, it depends on whether you support the continuance of the monopoly or not and what you anticipate will break the monopoly. I think that if we see a merger and see more, uh, again, it's, there's that big if. Are we going to have more competition or are we just going to have the mergers? You have to have an open market, mm -hmm. which means free trade between countries so that other large companies can compete with our large companies. In that case, I think it would be a positive thing, and, and Martin should butt out. I mean, the government shouldn't be regulating anything. They're the guys that gave these guys the monopoly in the first place. It's interesting to me if you talk to, uh, and I'm just, I'm not sure I've talked to 100 people about it, but I think if you talk to 100 people, men and women on the street in Canada, and ask them how many of them are happy or satisfied with the bank services, that you'd probably get 99 of them would say, I'm not. And if you said, uh, what would you think of more competition that would be likely to drive service costs down and so on, I think 99 out of the 100 would probably say, great idea. There's no political will to do it, but I think there's a whole lot of, of, of individual, uh, uh, you know, societal will to do sure. it. Sure. But it's not happening. Although, having said that, I don't, I don't necessarily think it's the solution to throw it open, uh, wide open. And historically, there's been this... Uh, uh, theory that it's good to have some large banks in Canada that are Canadian held and that that has advantages for Canada in terms of being able to compete in the world and so on. So I, I don't necessarily say, uh, you know, it's bad that we have five major banks, but to have go down to three, I think, is, is kind of pretty but, fine. But, Mike, uh, let me ask you a follow-up question to that, though. We keep hearing about these banks being able to compete out in the world. What does that mean for me as a Canadian citizen? How does that make any difference to me whether they're making the zillion dollars by loaning money to Brazil? What do I care about that? Even if I'm a sh sh other than, than being a shareholder in the bank, and I could, be, I could take my money out of there and put it somewhere else if I wanted, but other than that, how does that make any difference to me as a Canadian? I don't know. I, I think that what it is is that, that they will say that a CIBC, a Canadian bank, will in certain ways at certain times act differently than an American bank might if it was a branch in Canada because the owners are Canadian, the senior management is Canadian, they have a Canadian perspective, but it's pretty intangible. I, I don't know how that plays out. <laughs> when was the last time we saw that happen? Would yeah. you have asked that question in reverse if instead of talking about the banks making profits, we were talking about the banks losing a fortune, uh, going under, people losing their investments, would you be asking how, how that would make a difference to you as a Canadian? Um, 
Yeah, I think I think the same question. Wouldn't it be more obvious? No, the same question would be valid, though. I think it would still be valid to ask that. Um, but it, but that's not the situation. It's not an either or between those two between those two options because what we have is a situation where the banks are justifying this the, in uh, reducing the number number of the oligarchy. We know, all three of us know right here, that's not going to mean better service for us. I mean, there's absolutely no question that these banks are not going to improve their service levels. They keep pumping the service charges up. They will continue to do it because we have no choice but to pay. So that ain't going to happen. We're not going to get better service. So, how, again... What you're saying, then, is that it's impossible for the banks to react to consumer demand. Yeah, there is no consumer demand. And and what would cause a situation like that? There, is no, there is no consumer demand when there's a monopoly. Consumer demand is irrelevant because the monopoly does not well, have to respond well, to consumer the, demand. Well, then, then there's the answer again. We keep coming back to the same point. End the monopoly. Break the monopoly. Let everyone compete. Let uh, anyone get into the banking business. Jeff, I don't know why you disagree with that or why you think that opening the markets would make Canadian banks go away. I don't think so. I think already Canadian banks have an international reputation that's pretty good. Yeah, but it, like you could look at, for instance, uh, the United States right now. Uh, the, the United States uh, is a net uh, creditor of Japan, for instance, that uh, J Japanese banks uh, have uh, all kinds of money lent out in the United States. And the fear from, from the Americans that I've heard is that uh, Japan then controls effectively a lot of American industry. They can call loans. They can do all these things to play havoc with American industry. Well, no, 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 no. They're going to get the loan. 50 years ago, they were going at it with bombs and airplanes mm -hmm. and things, and these guys who were their mortal enemies 50 years ago, you know, now hold all, the, all their uh, all their loans, and the, the fear is, can we trust them? You know, if things go bad and it's sort of us versus them on some issue, will they respond differently than somebody who lives where I live would respond? Well, I think they're going to be seriously constrained in, you, in that example by the American government. The American government's not going to allow that to happen, and they have a lot of ways to prevent that from happening. Yeah, but again, it's a question of how far, how much, how much power do you let the... Uh, the uh, banks accumulate before you, you don't have that power. There's no power do, involved, Jeff. There's a contract involved. You borrow a billion dollars at X amount of interest and you honor the contract or you don't. And then there are consequences to not honoring it. Your assets are seized. Just like what happens between you and, the, and, and your bank when you don't pay your mortgage payment. I know, but those contracts are a lot more complicated is, than that. And if they do well, things that may like be, but deciding the to call loans and things like that. The other, the other thing about this whole bank merger that strikes me, it's so embarrassing as a Londoner to know that the whole bank merger controversy has arisen because uh, Royal Bank didn't get London Life last year. You know, that uh, they set out and decided they wanted to grab up a major uh, a major uh, company and uh, went after London Life, and we saw the handshakes and everything else. That fell apart. That's the only reason, as far as I can tell, that Bank of Montreal became the, the, the next bridesmaid. Uh, you know, and it's only because of the Bank of Montreal and Royal Bank merger that TD and CIBC got together. Uh, so it's all it's all our, our fault. Okay, I want to <laughs> pull the focus back to where we were going to start today and uh, with a, a follow-up to Danny Schechter's uh, conversation we had with him in the previous hour. The uh, there is a lot of concern, and he mentioned it too. I mean, here's an American writer who knew all about Conrad Black and talked about uh, the potential for disaster there. Conrad owns a whole lot of newspapers here, um, in the radio business. Uh, in over the next year, you're going to see a tremendous consolidation of stations right across this country. There will be fewer owners. There's absolutely no question that a year from now or two years from now, there'll be significantly fewer radio station owners in this country. No fewer radio stations, but fewer owners. Um, we've already seen what Conrad's doing. Uh, Toronto Sun is buying, has been rather aggressive in acquiring new, new uh, newspapers for their chain. Um, Bob, as a champion of the free market, uh, I'm, I'm guessing, I'm guessing that you don't see any problem with that. Not in and of itself, although I certainly do see a problem with where journalism and, and the type of content and variety that we can get is becoming a problem. But that's a, that's a separate issue. Uh, 
you know, it is cheaper, let's face it, to pay, ho pay Howard Stern one fee and have his show syndicated across the country or mm -hmm. Dr. Laura or whoever else. This, mm -hmm. is, this is the the trend and if these people draw the audiences well then that's the business that the radio stations are in mm -hmm. i think sometimes we look to the wrong source for our for our news i stopped watching television news maybe ten years ago mm -hmm. uh, i just tune into the odd program because it is so packaged and it is so superficial for what they can a actually offer you mm -hmm. in the little clips and bits and bytes that, th that they give you um, it's shows like this or print um, where you can get more detail, more discussion on an issue where people can actually get into it and get an understanding and in, and in a situation like what we're doing here actually call in and get involved. Mm -hmm. um, I, I see a big future there and that's, that's more to if you want to keep local programming that's a decision people have to make and they have to take a risk. I know back in the early 1980s I blew a little fortune of my own when I invested in a paper called the London Tribune 1981-82 lasted about a year we wanted to bring an alternate paper to the city but the public doesn't respond to things mm -hmm. like that so if that's not what the public wants why are we all sitting here whining and wimping and, and complaining about it if that's what the where the public's head is at then the problem is the public's head what's going on in there like what what are they thinking what well, do they really expect out of their media suppose the, well actually this, you mentioned about this is a good place for people to call and be part of the discussion let's get Gord on with this and then i've got some other questions for you as well this is left right and center with uh, bob metz and jeff schlemmer and Gord joins us good morning Gord. good morning uh, it seems interesting we're talking about banks and the media and two industries that are heavily regulated by the government that is radio and tv not necessarily newspapers but I think we should touch on uh, a technology that may, in fact, make, uh, uh, well, let's see, the, the dominant uh, uh, media and, uh, and banks irrelevant, and that is the Internet and the use of technology and the Internet. Um, anybody can put up their own web page. Eventually, anybody will be able to broadcast over the Internet. Well, for, for, for now, but there are very serious movements underway in both the United States and Canada to restrict that freedom. Uh, <laughs> I think governments are uh, grasping at straws. It is possible that they may be able to regulate um, Internet providers, perhaps within the country of Canada. But if I subscribe to a service in the United States, there's absolutely nothing mm -hmm. the Canadian government can do. And as a matter of fact, I would suggest that people defy the government by doing that. Mm -hmm. And I, I think another thing is encrypted cash is also a big threat to central banks mm -hmm. and to the banking monopolies that we have, in, well, throughout various countries of the world. They still run the credit cards, though. Well, that's, you know, we're in a transition period here. We haven't got anything solid because the American government has tried to ban certain encrypted technologies. Mm -hmm. So we're in a transition, so that's, that's just a matter of time that's coming. So I think all this discussion about media is, is irrelevant right now. I can go up on the World Wide Web and get far more information than I can anywhere on radio or TV, especially TV. So has Conrad uh, made a big mistake by spending all this money to buy all these newspapers? Has he, has he bought a dead well, technology? Well, it's, it's still a viable uh, business right now. But I'm, I'm suggesting that if people really want to find out information, they can go up on the World Wide Web and get any newspaper in the world, get any radio station pretty well and TV station, mm -hmm. um, individuals who are putting up their own web pages. So, you know, there's a whole number of outlets that you can get information from on the World Wide Web that makes this gentleman who wrote that book that you talked to 
irrelevant. Mm-hmm. I, uh, you know, like he, he talked about uh, the dominant media, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the reason why people aren't watching TV news is because they don't believe it, mm-hmm. first of all. It has nothing to do with, uh, I thought, his criticisms. Um, I, I thought perhaps that the reason why people aren't watching TV is what Bob stated. It's prepackaged fluff. Mm-hmm. Good points, uh, Gord. I think, too, Gord, that maybe that situation might change if the CRTC gets its way. They're talking right now about regulating Canadian content in, in, on the Internet, and they say that it is possible. And personally, I can see how it is. They could easily uh, regulate and force local servers not to tie into international servers, to keep to watch what lines they're bringing in or how many they can bring in from where, just like they do with cable and other services. That's true, but it would be uh, awfully difficult, though, to uh, stop an American provider um, from, you know, providing information to, you know, through the World Wide Web. Well, that's true, but you're talking about getting an American account, which means you have to dial in long distance every time to, to get online because you'd be dialing direct to America rather than local. That would be a loss to the local economy again. Uh, but that's given today's technology because there, there is right. a possibility that you could dial uh, long distance over the Internet um, with no long-distance charges, that's a possibility of that coming, too. That's yeah. true. Well, in fact, you can do that now yeah. in some, some, some applications. Gord, I'm glad you called. I appreciate your okay. thoughts today. thank you. Thanks very much. Gail's up next. Good morning, Gail. Well, good morning. I'd just like to get some uh, dialogue or opinions or something on this uh, article in the pre-press today by Karen Selleck about the Canadian Human Rights Commission. Mm-hmm. What I would really like to know, is there any way that... Uh, the average Canadian could uh, do anything about this Human Rights Commission? No, it's a, it's a long way from the discussion we're having today, Gail, but I think it's a valid point. Uh, well, it has something to do with media. Yep. It's in a newspaper. Yep, exactly. <laughs> did you guys... Did you guys th- that's what I meant. Did you, uh, you guys read Karen's article today? No, I never read Karen's articles. They, they annoy me too much. You have to articles. No, I... She's a, she's a Canadian lawyer every month, and she lives down in Belleville, and she's sort of, I don't know, she's she's about as far right as anybody I can imagine. Well, so she I, has a very different niece here. I really, yeah. uh, I, I kind of like her. Yeah, so do I. Yeah, if you're on the right, she's an articulate uh, writer, and she's well, got some interesting a, ideas. I'm not on the right, no, I keep saying, saying <laughs> I'm in the center, and I like her. And she's Karen, making Karen some not, not very like disturbing points, right. though. Yeah. It scares me. Yeah. Yeah, Karen rarely gives you the whole picture, though, when you talk about the Human Rights Commission. That's why I called you. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Take I, it, Jeff. As far as, you know, we've talked about commissions <clears throat> in the past, and uh, Karen, I, I believe, is sort of of the, the view that uh, the commission is some kind of a communistic organization that has somehow gained all kinds of power without any popular support. Well, that's but, what I'm wondering. Yeah, and that's How not the case happen? at all. The, the, the Human Rights Commission is appointed by Jean Chrétien, and Jean Chrétien is no lefty, I'll tell you that. And uh, he doesn't... What is he? John Gretchen? Yeah. Well, yeah. if you look at the way he's governed in the last five years, I would say he's pretty far right. He's certainly a lot further right than Brian Mulroney ever was uh, when it comes to cutting social programs and cutting human rights. And, uh, oh, he had all those kids. Get uh, back pepper to the spray. commission here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, don't get me started on John Cretchen. <laughs> but uh, anyway, no, the commission is appointed by Cretchen, and uh, the uh, mandate of the commission is to follow Canadian laws that have been passed by Parliament. You know, they, they are not a power unto themselves. They have to do what Parliament says. Although we've seen an example recently where the commission ruled on the uh, equity case, the pay equity case, and said that under Canadian law, uh, the government has been underpaying women employees for 20 years or so. Yeah, but let me ask you something. Why do we need them if we have a Parliament? How many uh, different sets of bureaucracies do we need? 
Well, what the commission does is it deals with individual cases, and Parliament never does that. Parliament deals with passing laws. Well, Jeff, let me share what Karen had to say. Uh, she's talking about uh, Michelle Fellardo-Ramsey, who's been a guest on this program, head of the Canadian Human's right, Human Rights Commission, and Karen says... Since her appointment in 1997, Fallador Ramsey has been campaigning to have poverty included as a prohibitive ground of discrimination under the Canadian Human Rights Act. She writes in the Commission's annual report, quote, Poverty is a serious breach of equality rights, which I believe has no place in a country as prosperous as ours. Now, if you say Karen Selleck is on the right, my God, that's about as far left as you're going to get. Yeah, well, I like it. Of course, I, I would say that poverty is a big problem in Canada, and no, we need no, to do no, something no. about no, it. No, 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 no. She's not saying it's a problem. She's saying it's a breach of equality rights. In other words, if you're poor, you're, you've been denied your rights. Well, yeah, and I guess, again, I would go back and suggest that the reason that they're saying that it's a breach of rights and all this stuff is because it's a big problem. If it wasn't a problem, they wouldn't care about it. Oh, come on, it. But having come said on, that, come on. Having said that, all, she's doing, all Karen is saying is that the uh, head of the Human Rights Commission is lobbying the government to try and change a law. And, of course, anybody's free to do that. You can do that, and so can I. To, to answer Gail's question, why we have human rights commissions, it's specifically so that the government can take away a fundamental freedom of all individuals, which is the right to discriminate, and do the discriminating itself. The government now does the discriminating. The government determines which groups get benefits at the expense of other groups, and it uses groups or, or institutions like the Human Rights Commission to carry out its social engineering, and that's all these things are. Human rights commissions are a means of avoiding the court system and getting around fundamental issues like what is acceptable as evidence. Uh, under a human rights commission, hearsay is perfectly acceptable. Well, under um, any kind of a tribunal, are, hearsay is acceptable. That's true. Well, isn't that a Well, that's true, and that's why... That's yeah. exactly why tribunals should all be abolished. They're, they have no place in a free society. There are probably about 50 tribunals in Ontario alone. Yeah, and, and I, I don't disagree either. The thing about uh, the reason we've gone to tribunals is because they're a lot cheaper than courts, because courts, you have to of go have lawyers. Of cheaper. Uh, it's a trade-off. <laughs> As a lawyer, I support courts, and I agree. I have the same for. concerns about the evidence, but that's true of all of all tribunals. So the, you know, the, the uh, uh, well, Workers' Compensation Board, Employment Insurance. Well, yeah, the same, it's the same answer to so many questions in our society, Gail, is you have to get more involved in the process, you have to get more involved in the people who get a good. I'm ready. Get what do I do? Well, well, right to the prime minister for starters. Gail, give me okay. a call at the office. We've been we've been at Freedom Party. We've been fighting uh, human rights commissions for ten years now. The government stacks all the cards against us. We're not allowed to give tax credits in our campaign on that, even though we're a registered political party. But if we wanted to do something that the Human Rights Commission supported, then we could give tax credits. And that's another way they regulate us. And, and, mm -hmm. and for, you know, not to outright ban us, because they don't want to do that. They know how wrong that is. Mm -hmm. So they go halfway. They know how it would but look. Right. Certainly publicizing issues is also an important way of doing it. And well, if you, what's if you your get, number? Oh, at the office uh -huh. here in London, 681-3999. Yeah, we got to leave it there, but I appreciate your thoughts and comments today. Okay, thanks Glad you a lot, called Jim. us. Bye-bye. We'll be back in just a moment. More Left, Right, and Center with Schlemmer and Metz. This is Left, Right, and Center with Bob Metz and Jeff Schlemmer. And, guys, I want to, although we've kind of been all over the map at this point, but that's okay because, uh, you know, we don't, we don't get paid by the topic. Uh, I, I want to uh, ask you, Jeff, a little bit more about Karen Selleck's article that sure. caller Gail brought up. And, and Karen is talking about uh, Michelle Fallardo Ramsey, who's the head of the Canadian Human Rights Commission. And Mich uh, Karen's premise is that Michelle is pushing to have poverty defined, uh, people who are poor, as a discriminated group, a group discriminated against, uh, a distinct, identifiable group. Now, 
I don't know whether she's trying to do that or not, although my discussions with Michelle would suggest that, yeah, that seems to be, I think she'd be comfortable with that. But the concern that Karen expresses, and I think a lot of Canadians express, is let's suppose that after a campaign, um, a successful campaign, that this, they did say, yep, absolutely. If you're poor, you're automatically in a group that's being discriminated against by the very fact that you're poor. Well, what happens then? Does that mean if you're poor, you get to go into a store and say, uh, you know, uh, the, the price tag's $20, I'm poor, you can't discriminate against me, all I've got is $10, so give me that, here's the 10 bucks. No, no, and it, what, what, the way this works is that, uh, and without having read the article, I gather what she's saying is that uh, there are enumerated uh, groups in the human rights legislation that you can't discriminate against. It's not to say that they are automatically being discriminated against, but for instance, uh, the Human Rights Code says you can't discriminate against somebody just because they're a woman, for mm -hmm. instance. So what what she would be doing is saying in that case, then you can't discriminate against somebody just because they're poor. And the way that applies is to federal legislation. That is that if there was legislation which discriminated against somebody because they were poor, then a court could come in and say, uh, and strike that down and say you can't do that. Now having said that, it's ultimately the courts that deal with all these questions. The courts are the ones who decide whether there is discrimination or not. But what they've always said to this point is that poor people as a group are not a group, uh, a, a discrete, separate group like women or like uh, uh, people of different uh, ethnic origins, for instance. Well, they, they, haven't haven't, they, haven't that, they haven't said that yet, right. but she's pushing for it. Uh, Jeff, how can you say it only applies to federal legislation then? then obviously the Ontario Human Rights Commission made a big mistake in charging Mr. Elia. He's not federal. Well, that's the Ontario Human Rights Commission. This is the Canada Human Rights Commission. Well, they, commission. Have, they, they operate on the same principles. No, I mean, the Canada uh, Commission deals with federal law. The Provincial Commission deals with provincial law. Well, with law, but as it affects individuals, you're, you're, what you're saying is that there's never been an individual brought before an, a Canadian Human Rights Commission? Oh, no, commission? you can be. No. Well, then, then, we're, then when you say it applies to federal legislation, I think you're misleading us a bit. You're, you're taking us off on a tangent when the real issue is the people who are affected by this. Uh, you know, they use the term systemic Bob, if I ever say something wrong on the show, it's not misleading. It's just because I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> don't you believe it, folks. He knows exactly what he's saying. You know, and that's... I'm, I'm almost tempted to believe you on that because when you come to, come to the language that, he, that is used by commissions, it, that language itself is misleading. They use a term like, you know, systemic discrimination. That means there has been no real discrimination on anyone's part. What they do is they rely on a statistic or on some measurement that, that, that is outside anyone's making of choices mm -hmm. so that if a landlord, like, like under the Cornish Commission, they were going to establish all these percentages that, for example, uh, and it applies to service providers, um, landlords, and employers. Those are the areas, those are the three main groups that are affected mm -hmm. by human rights legislation. And what it basically would have said is that if any of these groups, uh, for example, an employer has, uh, he has to have the same percentage of employees by race and all these so-called enumerated groups, as Jeff calls them, as exist in the community. Mm -hmm. If he does not have that same percentage, then he is deemed to be discriminating. And that's called systemic discrimination. It's based on a statistic. And it's a very arbitrary thing. They don't take into account what choices these groups might be making themselves. But, that, we did, but that, that legislation did not come to pass. Uh, not as explicitly, but it's still how the Human Rights Commission operates explicitly. Let's go to the phones where Jim joins us. Good morning, Jim. Yeah, interesting uh, conversation the last five minutes about the uh, equality in the poor. <laughs> Jeff, what are you going to do if, if they do implement this? And they probably will, knowing how Ottawa works in the Human Rights Commission. 
And I have a big hate against the Human Rights Commission. I guess I, I like to work from a foundation of truth. And if someone was to approach you and say, you know, it's been said about Jeff that he's doing this and that. I know it's hearsay, but we'll admit it into, into the commission. In a court, they would throw it out so fast. So, so to me, it, there, there's so many faults that are wrong with the commission. But back to this article. What happens now if a poor person comes and they pass this equality bit and he says, I don't have the money to rent your apartment, but by law you have to give it to me. Well, as I say, it doesn't apply to the private sector, but oh, to give you oh, an yeah, example yeah. of well, how, how do we know that? How, how do we know Jeff, that? You, they said that about all the other acts back in the 1960s. It's not going to apply to the private sector. And look what's happening now with the private sector. Right. Well, again, I, I, I can't get too far into constitutional law because it's not my area of expertise. But my understanding, and, and the cases that I've been involved in where this kind of an argument has been raised, are ones where there's been a government law passed. And, and to give you an example of one, I was involved in the case when the welfare rates were cut back in October of 95. Right. At that time, they cut the rates 21.6%. We argued that that was discriminating against poor people. Uh, the court said, no, it's not. And in fact, if the government wanted to get rid of welfare tomorrow, they could abolish it tomorrow. There's nothing to stop that. The government's perfectly allowed to do that. And the reason, they said, is because the class of, of uh, people as poor people is not one of those enumerated classes. Yet. Yes. Yet. That's right. And yes. what's happened is that there have been a number of cases since, since sort of the mid-90s where there have been... Uh, laws passed that have had an immense impact on poor people, and uh, these cases have come forward. What kind of laws, Jeff? Well, that's a, that's a pretty good example. They took a billion dollars away from uh, mostly children in the case whoa, of... Whoa, 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 whoa. They didn't take it away. They just didn't give it to them. They never had it to take. It wasn't well, they had, it, they had it one day, and they didn't have it the next day. Well, it wasn't theirs to begin with. I mean, well, I, I would argue it was, but well, we could talk about that in a minute. Well, 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 I've heard them say, well, you know, they cut back on, they cut back on my salary for a well, it's not a, It's not a salary to begin with. They didn't take it. We're giving it to them. No, it's a service that you're paying for, I would argue, as a taxpayer. And it's a service that I would, I would think is a good service. It's something we need. If we didn't have welfare, we'd have uh, civil war. But if it's a service I'm paying for, by that statement you've just made there, you then put it into my hand how to control that service. If I don't want to go to McDonald's, I go to Burger King. If you say it's now a service, I have the right then to cut back on the level of that service, don't I? If you think it's a good idea, I think it's a bad idea myself, and I'm paying for it, too. Well, yeah, but I'm saying the taxpayers as a whole have, have the control there. But the problem is, by going to the equality issue, what's happening is, and this, this, this is the bread and butter of socialism, those on the left. And socialism is just a communist without a rifle. Let's cut through all the crap. <laughs> that's, what, that's what a socialist is. He's a communist without a rifle. I don't think so. Well, hey, equal. What well, what's they, a fascist, what, then? Is that a right-winger without a rifle? What's that? <laughs> they, First right. off, the Nazis weren't right-wing. They were socialists. Mm -hmm. No, I'm talking about fascism. Yeah, it's the same. Both, both fringes on the left are the right or wrong. Yeah. But with socialism, it's equal outcome as opposed to equal opportunity. I mean, Bob's driving a brand-new big car, and he's got a 50-inch color TV. Why don't I have one? I'm entitled to it. Yeah, nobody's suggesting that that's ever going to be the way things are. But, but that's the, what the issue right now is that these are all laws that would have to be passed by governments that are in power right now. And, and they I'm will sure be. the Liberal government of Canada and is they will not be. going to pass a law like that. Oh, they, those laws will be passed where, we'll have, where, we, where we won't be allowed to discriminate against the poor. Now, personally, myself, I believe we should be helping the poor. In, in a sense, I believe in socialism, but on an individual basis where I should help my, my fellow man. But you can't enforce it. And that's where those on the left get hurt all the time. They try to enforce it, and people don't like to have it enforced. Well, I agree. Yeah, I, listen, well, what you believe in, Jim, is charity, not socialism, because socialism means you do have that gun. Exactly. Right. I mean, to me, it's charity. If I want to take $10,000 and buy Ryan a new van, that's my right. But don't, don't force it on me. I'm not going to do it. Jim, appreciate your call, right, sir. Bye-bye. Thank you. And Denny's with us next. Hi, Denny. Hi, uh, guys. Uh, just uh, a couple of points here. One of the... 
uh, thoughts I've been kind of going over with on this program is uh, the business of needs and wants. And I think we've got a lot of wanty people out there as opposed to needy. And uh, the bureaucracies seem to get all muddled here and include a whole lot of wants and the things that should be uh, that aren't really needs. I don't know if you have any comment on that. Well, I assume that you're talking about the people who, over the last decade of the recession and the post-recession period, have been able to build all the monster homes around town and buy all the Mercedes well, no, four I'm by fours. That, I'm not thinking they have a lot of wants, people. I guess. <laughs> that's like if they if they uh, dream for that sort of stuff and they work hard to get it. I guess that's fine. I'm t- I'm talking about the people on the other end who who are struggling to do this or do that or whatever it is, and we keep, or maybe they're not struggling, and we keep throwing and throwing and throwing, just making the the pile bigger, uh, then uh, where, where does the need part come in? Well, that's like, the, what do the, they really need as opposed to all, all of the wants that everybody, like uh, the $100 running shoes, the pizzas every week, and all that kind of stuff? Well, there is that mythology, but if you look at what mythology? somebody... Mythology? Oh, well, let me, let me finish. That if you look at what somebody on welfare gets in a month, they get uh, $520 a month. Uh, their needs, I guess, would argue is some food to keep them healthy, a place to live uh, so they're not out in the, in the cold. Okay, define a place to live. Well, of I their guess own? I would say it should have a roof over it. Of uh, their own? Well, the, none of them have a place of their own, I'll tell you that. Many do. <laughs> no, they don't. There's a, well, a microscopic... I'm a landlord. <laughs> well, I can tell you, I'm a lawyer who specializes in this, and I'm pretty well. familiar with how it all works. But, uh, no, extraordinarily few people on welfare own homes. The only ones who do are, are generally elderly people who have been forced they onto don't welfare. Own, obviously, don't own homes. Uh, see, no, I, the I, older people are the ones who who tend to own homes. But young people, there's no way you can have a house on welfare. Well, why would you want? Why would you possibly justify owning a house on welfare? That's what I said. It, it doesn't exist. It's a myth. There may be one or two of them out of twelve thousand people in London. But uh, no, no, you get your three hundred. You get your three hundred twenty-five dollars a month for rent, and you get what you can get for that. And I would argue that it's probably that's not too luxurious. Yeah, it's it's not too luxurious. I don't think well, three twenty-five. Okay. So what do they need? Well, they need to be kept out of the cold, yeah. I would argue, and out of the okay. rain. <laughs> they don't need the dog. They don't need their own apartment. They don't need cable TV, right? Well, that's the other question, is whether it's whether it's a good idea to keep them absolutely as miserable as possible. And some people argue is it, it is a good idea. not to have a dog? Well, if you're saying that, for instance, they should live solely on craft dinner every day of the week, that they should have, uh, they should never be able to have the slightest luxury of any kind, like a cigarette or like a pop, for instance. A lot of people argue that, but you have to remember that most of those people who are on welfare weren't there 10 years ago. Uh, you know, the welfare no, rates quadrupled when age. the recession started. No, the, the welfare rate quadrupled when the recession started. They were all thrown out of work. The phenomenon we've seen in the late part of the 90s is that we've had this economic boom for three years now, but most of them haven't been able to get jobs because there are aren't jobs. We've seen a major restructuring of the economy. So what we have to decide, is it a good idea to keep 10% of our, of our population absolutely abjectly miserable living on the borderline between need and want uh, permanently? I would argue that's a bad idea. What we need to do is get them back to work. The uh, next uh, point here, Jim, if I can do time, just to yeah, quickly leave you guys uh, talk about it versus uh, uh, children of poverty versus families of poverty. I don't see how there can be a child of, or a uh, uh, for children, it's families, it's right. not children. I don't know where this I agree. children thing came up. Yeah, well, yeah. because children are, are a very easy target to, to, to focus people's attention on and to get their emotional support. You, you know, the issue you bring up, Danny, between needs and wants, the problem politically with that is that it requires discrimination. And it requires a standard. And the standard you have to decide on is are you going to have a welfare system based that will supply people's basic survival or their basic comfort. 
And I think these are two different issues, and you'll find people are, feel very differently about them. The issue from the government point of view is that we, as the contributors to the welfare system, we don't get a choice. We don't get a choice to do any discriminating, any, any deciding of which type of person we'd prefer to support through our so-called welfare dollars. But you know? if, we, if we allow overstuffed bureaucrats to decide what's a need and what's a want, we, we know where that's going to end up. Well, they stop doing that entirely. That's why they use words like systemic discrimination. They, they include the whole group. Everybody's entitled. And then, yeah. then it removes the need of even discriminating or even making that choice. Danny, appreciate yeah. your call today. Thanks, Jim. Thanks very much. We're going to pause for a moment. Still lots more left, right, and center, and lots of opportunity for you to join us at 643-1290. It's left, right, and center with Jeff Schlemmer and Bob Metz, our regular Wednesday feature when we get together and just talk about issues of the day, kick around some philosophical arguments, and have some fun, too. And you're always welcome to join us at 643-1290. And Zoltan's with us. Good morning, Zoltan. Uh, good morning. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Well, I, I'm originally uh, an immigrant from Hungary back in 1957. Mm -hmm. So I, I think I have a little bit of memory left of this communism system there. Yeah. And that one commentator on there, he's scary. Uh, socialism is, uh, I, I know what it's done to us in Hungary. Um, it, oh. it created two systems. Mm -hmm. uh, one is that if you, you, you belong to the Communist Party, and in this case, if you belong to the Human Rights Commission, mm -hmm. Then, then you become one kind of citizen, the right kind of citizen. And if you, didn't, if you didn't belong to the Communist Party, then you became like an outcast. You couldn't go to certain places mm -hmm. because you didn't have a card. Mm -hmm. And then you got beat up at night if you started talking about, um, you know, against the system. Yeah. And then, then, then there were such people as what they call spitzli, mm -hmm. which, which means that they spit it, in other words... They listened in on your conversation, mm -hmm. and, and then they reported, the people who listened in on your conversation, then reported to the authorities, and then you got taken in. But you know, Zoltan, the socialists will tell you, and I'm going to speak for Jeff here, that, that, that those regimes were not socialist regimes. They were totalitarian regimes, and they were only incidentally socialist. Yeah, yeah, but we have a prime minister up there in a system that, that we can't get out in a democracy. Mm -hmm. It is approaching uh, a totalitarianism. Mm -hmm. You know that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, so with this Human Rights Commission, it, it is really, really becoming scary to me, as, as a Canadian citizen, that what kind of power it wields. Mm -hmm. I want the court system to wield that kind of power, and I am willing to pay taxes to that effect, even well, if it costs more. Yeah, I appreciate your call today. Yeah, Thank you. Let your MP know. Yeah, let your NP know for sure. Thanks, Zoltan. Yeah. 643-1290 is the telephone number. Star 1290 is the free can-tell call. Jeff Schlemmer and Bob Metz here on Left, Right, and Center, our regular Wednesday feature. Another regular Wednesday feature is Ask the Experts, a brand new time, 1230, right after the noon news package from 1230 to 1 every day. Today, Bud Polhill, our automotive expert, will be joining us. So get your questions ready, and we'll get you the answers. You know, again, I want to flip back sort of to where we started or after we started or where I don't know where it was. I want to come back to the media thing again because they, one of the complaints that is leveled at the media by both sides, by both the right and the left at various times, is that the media is either slants one way or the other way, never slants your way. Um, but, but from, as, as somebody in the media, I know that there is certainly the, uh, the opportunity to maybe slightly, I'm talking about news stories, to slightly uh, inject a little bit of, of your, your personal uh, evaluation of that, but very, very little, and the good people don't do it at all. 
How then do we get to the point where both the left and the right are bitching about the media all the time? Well, I think that the first thing is that uh, the way that a Conrad Black would have influence in his newspapers is by who he hires to edit it. And, uh, yeah, you have to cover the major stories, but there are all kinds of things that happen every day that you may or may not choose to cover. And... Uh, at different times, different people have interests in different things, and uh, you may have one editor who's more interested in social issues and, and is leftish and decides that it's important to go cover a labor rally or something, uh, where you've got another person who's more of a right-winger who decides, no, it's more important to cover the Chamber of Commerce lunch. Mm -hmm. And I think it comes down to those kinds of things about sort of, there's so much happening out there every day, the editors have to do a huge amount of, of discrimination in, in the news uh, and coming back to uh, what they think are the most important stories. Uh, and, and yeah, it does go both ways. I would, I would argue, for instance, that look at a CBC, I think, is pretty consistently criticized by the right as being too left-wing. Uh, and from the left, we sort of see that as sort of a balance against the, uh, the Conrad Blacks and the Sun Chain and so on. Uh, and that by sort of covering all of it, hopefully you sort of get a gist of, of what's happening. Bob? I, I have to disagree with your first assumption, Jim, that we ever did have reporters that were neutral on an issue. I don't think that is possible. I think there was a time when they were more objective, that's true, and that more people would not, uh, you know, react negatively to the objective part of their news, but I, but I think you cannot write without being subjective in some way, shape, or form, even from the point of view of the language you use. Like, if I read a column by Judy Rebick, and I see certain words in that column, I know they mean something totally different than if I read a column by Karen Selleck, mm -hmm. even though it may be the same word mm -hmm. being used. Yeah. They mean two totally different things by it. And so you almost have to know the writer to understand what they're saying to you. You have to know something about their slant. And, uh, and there are good left-wing and right-wing writers that I, even I would say, as long as I know where they're coming from and what they're saying, I can mm -hmm. glean information out of that, mm -hmm. uh, that report. So that if I know that a uh, certain person's left-wing, I interpret that from that point of view. And I try to, you know, integrate that into how I understand what, they're, what, what message they're giving me. And I think that's a responsibility that belongs to the reader. And the reader has to become more discriminating. We can yell all we want about bad reporters and bad news reporting and, and the crap that's on the air. But look who's watching it. And, well, I want to come back to what, uh, what Danny Schlechter said in the last hour there. He said that we should not be misled by look who's watching it because his contention was you got a whole bunch of people who who are tv watchers but if they see the na same story on every channel well they're going to watch one of those stories why i didn't well, I, if i saw the same show on every channel i'd be watching star trek or something well, else forget but, it see, but, <laughs> and i agree with you and it's, i mean even with the cable system we have here there's lots of alternate programming when there's news on some sure. of the channels there's all sorts of other stuff on there but that brings back to the maybe the reality that those people are watching that it is what they want well, you're always going to get a, a certain sense of an audience that will just put the TV on and listen to whatever they're being spoon-fed because, for whatever reason, a lot of people may watch a local show because it is local. Mm -hmm. Some people watch the national news because it is national. Or some people watch American news because they want to get away from Canadian mm -hmm. perspective, period. And that's all that they're looking for. Um, sometimes they're not that you know discriminating about what they're taking in they're just getting a very broad overview of a lot of issues and and you know when you do get issues like monica Lewinsky and oj simpson and princess diana and all these things uh, that overwhelm us in terms of media coverage mm -hmm. that really uh, you know slants our perception of the media but are there really that many events of that nature that constantly permeate the media i don't know what if there uh, were though I, i'd almost say you know the one of the reasons that those stories get so much coverage is because they're the good stories 
And if there were more good stories, the individual ones would get less coverage, but we'd still have those, quote, good stories. Well, good in what sense? I think they're easy stories. Well, exactly. You yeah. can just sit at home, watch it on cable, yeah, exactly. and report through yep. the news. You don't even have to get up from your seat. I'm saying good yeah. from the perspective of a programmer who's looking for the lowest possible oh, common denominator, right, right. which and is what a lot of them are looking for. You know, author, not all of them, author, not a lot of them. Author Joe Armstrong has uh, lamented many times about the state of uh, media in the country because of what he calls lazy reporters. Mm -hmm. They won't get out there and actually ask somebody who who is on the other side of the government's position on mm -hmm. something, for example. The government issues all kinds of press releases yeah. that often get reported on the air ver verbatim. Yeah. I get these releases, too, and then I hear them on the news, and I go, my God, didn't they call anybody else up? This is, this is okay, so BS. How, how, do we, how do we get around that? Because I'll tell you the reality in the radio business. Radio newsrooms, generally speaking, do not have the number of reporters that they had 15 or 20 years ago, simply because they cannot pay them. There's not enough money coming in the front door to go into the paychecks. So you've got a situation where you've got a product that people want, radio broadcasting. Um, you want to do as good a job as you can, so you allocate as many dollars as you can to, to the news and, and that sort of stuff, uh, the, the public affairs programming and whatnot. It's a little different on radio than TV because you don't have the whole long roster of shows in the evening and all day long every show changing every half hour or hour. Radio tends to be in larger blocks. But just speaking from radio, because that's the one I know, we'd love, I know Ed Wilmot, our news director, would love to have a half a dozen reporters in there that he could send out on all these stories. You're talking before about lazy reporters. I'm not so sure it's lazy reporters as much as it's no reporters at all. But the economic reality is, in a radio stations in, a, in this, this size of the market we've got here, they can't support large newsrooms because people don't, not enough people will listen to pay the bills. And that's a real problem because... Uh, if the overhead of the particular medium you have you are in is such that you can only afford a certain level of uh, of, of reporting, well, that's all you're going to get. I come back to Gord's original comment at the beginning of the show. I think you're going to see a big change of all of this because of the internet. Mm -hmm. Not only will be will news be easier, more news be easier to uh, put together by fewer people. But the people who are on the internet are more the, uh, and I mean this in a nice way, the zealot type. You know, the more, yeah, well, the, the, the more, the more uh, dedicated to what they're doing. But and, isn't and that a problem? Uh, to me, that's problematic. The one thing you can say you about, well, the one thing you can say about radio and television and newspapers is they are right there. They are public. They are publicly accountable. And in the sense that if you or Jeff or I don't like what they said, we can go after them in public. And we can say, you know, you guys were wrong. That story's wrong. And the free press generally now will, will print your letter to the editor. Somebody complains well, how about... How can you not do that on the Internet? Somebody complains about something that I do in the program. They contact me and say, I don't, you know, it was wrong, yada, yada, yada. Well, who, who, who are these people on the Internet? And how do you do that? Well, if I, was, if I was a reporter using the Internet as a source, I would certainly wait to, to check the credibility of any source that I checked out. But what I, if you're I not a reporter? What if you're raw, though, right off the net. Yeah, what if you're an individual who's out there getting all this information? Because I have... Then you have to... Then you have to apply the same discrimination that I just mentioned earlier, as, as just as you would reading an article in the newspaper. You've got to understand who the per person is who is writing that article and where their slant's coming from, and, and you have that same responsibility extends to the Internet. Okay, we'll be back in just a second. Still a little bit more to come, and still time for you to get your call in at 643-1290. A couple minutes left. We want to get Robert on the air. Good morning, Robert. Uh, good morning. Yes, sir. Um, I'd just like to comment on how to keep the Internet... Um, news media and business um, honest yes um, I do have a business on the internet and that's how I earn my living and to tell you the truth it's a very um, well watched um, area for example I sell videos mm -hmm. and if I treat a customer 
um, wrongly or, or, or some customer thinks he has a grievance with me. All I have to do is go on the news groups, mm -hmm. and it's all over it. Let's suppose, for example, that somebody went on and said that Prime Minister Jones, our new Prime Minister Jones, um, in his secret life, uh, you know, um, I don't know, did some horrible thing. And I go on the Internet and I post that as a, as a legit news story. There's a news story. You didn't know this. I just found this out. What's going to happen to me? Well, I think the use groups is, um, is something that hasn't even been talked about on your show yet. Mm -hmm. And, and what, what they are, are are more or less people writing in on certain topics. There are 20,000 different topics that you can just... Well, let's uh, come back to Prime Minister Jones, though. They're going to write in and say, you know, that guy's wrong. And I'm going to say, hey, you don't have the information I do. That's right. And that's exactly what happens. You look under a use group under, say, Canadian Prime Minister. Mm -hmm. And you'll find your article, and you'll find uh, somebody saying, well, you're wrong for these reasons, and somebody else coming in and saying, no, you're right for these reasons. And it's a debate very much like your own show today, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. except it's on the Internet. But how does that guarantee that we're going to get to the truth? Well, with, those, with that debate, there's a lot of information as well on, on for, example, uh, for example, if somebody says that you're wrong for these reasons, then he could list the sources, mm -hmm. and you could look those up. And mm -hmm. I get a lot of my news from the Internet. I'm, I'm on there constantly. Mm -hmm. And it's just like what Metz was saying there. You, you have to be a discriminating um, reader. You have to, to consider your source. Um, there's a lot of sources on the Internet that are reputable, like you could have NBC mm -hmm. or Microsoft uh, News Services or, or Fox right. and all the television shows. Those are reputable sources for news, and, and you don't necessarily question the validity of those sources. Right. Robert, we're out of time here, but I appreciate your call. That's a topic we should take up on another day, I think. Okay, sir. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. And thank you to my guests today. Always Thanks, uh, fun and informative and lively, and I hope you found it the same way at home today. Uh, Bob Metz and Jeff Schlemmer are here every Wednesday from 11 till 12 on left, right, and center. And if there's a topic you'd like to hear discussed, if there's something you'd like to uh, kind of get the different perspectives on, don't hesitate to write us or give us a call or fax us or any of those other things. Let us know what you'd like us to do, and we'll be happy to take on uh, just about any topic you want to send our way.